Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash CFX. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to this peer voice on demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises three presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Okay, well, uh, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for attending this uh, program this evening. I wish I could see you all, but these lights are so bright up here, it's hard to, to actually see you, particularly at the back. But anyway, I'm delighted to see that you're all here for this uh, program. I mean, it's great to be here in uh, Indianapolis and uh, to be able to attend these types of programs. So this program is entitled uh, Dual Duty, Protecting Cardiovascular Health in Patients with Narcolepsy. I'm Michael Thorpe. Uh, I'm from uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine and uh, the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center at Montefiore Medical Center in uh, New York City. And I'm joined by my colleagues. Uh, uh, closest to me is Phyllis Z, Center of Circadian and Sleep Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern Medicine Sleep and Circadian Disorder Center at Northwestern Medicine, Chicago. And Richard Bogan, who is uh, University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, Medical University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Charleston, South Carolina. We're going to have a lot of uh, uh, polling questions and discussion around uh, uh, those questions about uh, how you really, in a practical sense, what are you going to do with your patients with narcolepsy? Just going to ignore all the advice that, uh, and information we give you or are actually going to do something from a practical sense? And we're going to talk about what sort of things you can do and find out which ones you feel you're comfortable about uh, doing. So we're going to talk about that. And then uh, we'll sort of wrap up at the end with uh, uh, some questions regarding what your particular final intent is with regards to your management overall of patients with narcolepsy. But uh, right at the end, actually, we've got a, a, an interesting uh, component to this program. And it's, uh, to me, it's unique, actually. I've never uh, encountered this in uh, uh, any program that uh, I've been involved in before. And it's a little fun thing that we're going to have at the end. So I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to, you'll have to wait till the end of the program to see this. But I would encourage you to, uh, uh, to stay and uh, watch this. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Okay, so now let's get to the uh, topic of the program. So um, how would you characterize cardiovascular risk related to narcolepsy? So majority think it's moderate. Uh, number feel they're not sure about it. Some feel it's severe. Okay, so as we go through the program, you'll have the opportunity to actually redo this and see if you still agree with your initial assessment. Okay, uh, which of the following factors is, most, uh, is the most likely explanation for the increased cardiovascular risk in people with narcolepsy? Okay, so combination of uh, lifestyle changes and uh, pathophysiology seems to be the most uh, uh, common suggestion. Okay, let's move on. So now I'd like to ask uh, Phyllis to come up.
and uh, talk about uh, what the factors are that uh, contribute to a cardiovascular risk in narcolepsy. Phyllis. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good evening to, uh, to everyone. So we're, we're going to talk very quickly, actually, about some of these risks. So how many of you have seen the Life Simple 7 or the change to Life's Essential 8 from the American Heart Association? How many? Great. It's a huge win for the sleep field to be to have sleep included and recognize in cardiovascular disease risk as one of the essential elements for cardiovascular health. And similarly, I think we will begin to see that sleep disorders can also affect, such as narcolepsy, cardiovascular health. Again, it's really important bi-directional relationship. So that's what's been added, really, just very, very recently. Very, very big win for all of us. So I'm sure all of you know what narcolepsy is, your sleep uh, experts, but I just want to remind you, excessive daytime sleepiness is 100% in these patients. Cataplexy is see that in the type 1 narcolepsy, and it can occur anywhere about 50, 60 percent of your patients with uh, narcolepsy, especially much more, much less than that in the, your, in the type 2s. There are other REM phenomena I think that we should be always aware of. We tend to think about sleep paralysis, we tend to think about, you know, these hypnagogic, hypnopompic hallucinations, but just vivid dreams. You gotta ask your patients about vivid dreams. They may not think of them as being, you know, hallucinations, but very, very vivid dreams are important, and they can be sensory, they can be auditory, tactile, or sometimes uh, visual. So we talked about the excessive daytime sleepiness, the associated symptoms of vivid dreaming, uh, hypnagogic hallucinations, cataplexy, and, uh, and excessive daytime sleep. But what we don't sometimes tend to think about is that of sleep disruption. So not only are they sleepy during the day, they also have very disrupted sleep, fragmented sleep during the night. And some of your patients are aware of that, others may not because they're just short or brief arousals. So what are some of the pathophysiological mechanisms? There, 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 there's several that have been proposed. But I think that what we begin to realize is that narcolepsy is a disorder of brain state instability, and that means they can't stay awake during the day, they kind of keep falling into these sleep episodes, and also during the night, they have difficulty maintaining consolidated sleep. And we think that that is in part due to a decrease in orexin levels, orexin signaling, because the orexin system allows one to maintain wakefulness in a very stable state, and also, therefore, building that homeostatic drive during the day allows you to have more consolidated sleep dur during the night. It's usually decreased levels, mutations of the orexin receptor are quite rare, and in general, we believe that this, there's an autoimmune uh, basis to this. And you can see this, probably the most popular one is the T-cell mediated model, where you have this pathogen, an infection, that activates the CD4 cells, the T-cells, and that through mimicry gets now into, uh, into the brain and begins to attack the orexin uh, neurons and therefore cause them to degenerate in, in patients with particularly type 1 uh, narcolepsy. We think, 
Usually patients with narcolepsy have you know, sleepiness, they can't stay awake, they may also have some deep, some REM sleep dis dysregulation. But the orexin system is actually has broader pathways, broader uh, function than just sleep and wake. It regulates the reward system, right? Many of your patients with narcolepsy are probably not likely to abuse the drugs that you give them. Uh, they have a lower amount of, uh, of this reward system, uh, locomotion, physical activity levels, and very importantly, autonomic function and sympathetic tone. It also has all these inputs that come in, for example, the sleep-wake cycle can input it, circadian, you know, my favorite thing, right? So circadian rhythms can also input into the orexin system, such as, and also motivation, and also its effects on feeding. So because of this kind of broad impact of the orexin system on so many areas of the brain, and in specifically also the sympathetic system, it's not surprising that they're associated with multiple comorbid medical psychiatric disorders as well as other sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea, but also uh, restless legs. So we tend to think that you can see them all here, and but something that's come to light in the last several years is really the uh, that of cardiometabolic disease, and associated with that a lot of eating disorders, anxiety disorders, uh, etc., and special mental health disorders. Obesity indeed is common in patients with narcolepsy, more so than in the general population. And especially in children, rapid weight gain uh, around puberty could be a sign also of a hypothalamic change and also a sign of patients uh, who may have narcolepsy. And patients, because they are tend to be overweight and obese, are at increased risk for obesity. And this is just data from several studies now, from Cohen, Black, data that shows that, indeed, the odds ratio of having of narcolepsy, of narcolepsy patients being uh, obese or, or with diabetes is almost twofold. So that's pretty, pretty high. It's moderate to high, I would, I would say. Narcolepsy, as I mentioned earlier, is also associated with many comorbid disorders. I'm not going to read those. You can look at those uh, yourself. This is the very famous Bond uh, study. But we're going to focus now on cardiometabolic uh, disease. Same thing from the, from the Bond study. You can see that patients with narcolepsy have two and a half fold increase in stroke, myocardial infarction, 1.6, coronary revascularization, heart failure, and cardiac arrest. So it's not mild, it's not trivial, it's something that we should be considering. Why might that be? There's also lack of nocturnal blood pressure dipping in patients uh, with, with narcolepsy, uh, and dipping is, is defined as greater, equal or greater than 10% of dip in the sleep during the sleep or nighttime period. And you can see a substantial 31% versus 3%, so pretty much, much, much higher uh, lack of nocturnal dipping in these patients with narcolepsy. Furthermore, we know that they're excessively sleepy, and that patients who, people with excessive daytime sleepiness, there's multiple causes, but one of them that's come into attention is a microbiome, inflammation. So patients with narcolepsy may have dysbiosis of the microbiome, increasing uh, inflammation, increasing and then causing potentially epigenetic changes in the genome, and therefore in the blood vessel, changes in the elastic blood vessel wall, increasing then the risk for cardiovascular disease as well as uh, hypertension. 
Now, if you're not thinking, like, okay, cardiovascular disease, but what about mortality, right? Cardiovascular disease and mortality, you can see that in this uh, uh, Kaplan-Meier survivor curve, you can really see that patients with excessive daytime sleepiness, even mild sleepiness, are increased risk for mortality. Obviously, some of that is due to our accidents or uh, because they have fallen asleep. Uh, at the wheel. And this is just another way of looking at it, that patients with narcolepsy have a 1.5 fold excess mortality. Before, the slide was about patients who are sleepy. This is now very specific to patients with uh, narcolepsy. So I'm really going to end right now by saying that the American Heart Association has recognized sleep as affecting cardiovascular health. We are now recognizing that many of our sleep disorders, not only sleep apnea, but something like narcolepsy, is also increasing the risk for adverse cardiovascular health uh, outcomes. And especially the, the sleep, we know that having good sleep, having good nutrition, having great physical activity levels, all of that will lead to better sleep health. But in patients with narcolepsy, there, the lack of the erection system, which affects appetite regulation, affects activity levels, affects your sleep, may be contributing also to the obesity and the cardiometabolic disease that we see. So I'd like to thank you for your attention at this moment, and I'd like to hand this over to my colleague, Dr. Bogan. Thank you, Dr. Z. So, um, so, you know, I mean, as humans, we like state stability. I mean, we're awake in the day and sleep at night, and that actually, from a herd effect, I mean, it has something to do with our survival. I mean, we feed and protect ourselves and reproduce and do all the things we're supposed to do, and we have state stability. And when we think about this, we think about the interaction between circadian clock and sleep homeostasis. So right now, we've been awake all day, and we have this homeostatic drive that's building up, and then the sun sets, and in just a little while, the circadian clock winds down and we have a high homeostatic drive, we sleep. Patients with narcolepsy have state instability, as Dr. Z pointed out, and certainly in type 1 with this orexin deficient state, think of orexin as really an important neuropeptide, as she pointed out, in terms of uh, helping with uh, not only alertness, but the hypothalamic pituitary axis, uh, autonomic tone, feeding, breathing, locomotion. I mean, it has some influence on, on a lot of these. So we can think of our patients with narcolepsy as having some of this state instability that Dr. Z pointed out. And um, the question I was going to ask is, I mean, each cell has a circadian rhythm to it. I mean, it has the master clock, but each cell, in terms of gene transcription, has a certain component of rhythmicity to it. I mean, the stomach and the heart and you know, we, we get hungry at certain times, so I don't know exactly what the percent is, but the point is, is our cells really rely on this rhythmicity, and when we disturb that, we get disturbances in metabolism. Uh, one of the things that impresses me is that a sleepy brain is a hungry brain, and um, so, um, you know, we, we tend to consume these calories. I, I'm I can certainly say that this is true of me and uh, that I, you know, I, I like to snack when I'm sleepy, but when we have this uh, state instability, you can see that translates into autonomic dysfunction, which can translate into certainly cardiovascular effects, but um, we also have the sleepiness, the disruption in the sleep, 
but we have these cardiometabolic abnormalities that also occur. And we talked about the diabetes and the obesity, the dyslipidemia, the hypertension. Those are clearly risk factors for developing cardiovascular problems. And there's a lot we don't understand, and this is evolving science, but it's something that we want to watch and understand more about the science as, as we move forward. And of course, these individuals have other sleep disorders. I mean, they have obstructive sleep apnea. How does that relate to the orexin and, and genetic signaling that's going on? Um, they have restless leg syndrome. And of course, in the pediatric population, as Dr. Z pointed out, the precocious puberty and, um, and obesity that occurs in those. So we'll, we'll look at some of these, but there certainly are modifiable risk factors. And so diet, exercise, and um, you know, good sleep are, are things that we constantly are looking at along with some of these other things that can help us in terms of trying to reduce systemic inflammation and, re and reduce cardiovascular and CNS phenomena. Uh, Dr. Z already pointed out that sleep is really important. This actually was a study kind of looking at shift workers, and we know about over 20% of shift workers uh, have complaints of inability to sleep and, and daytime or their daytime equivalent sleepiness. But when, you begin, when we begin to look at those individuals in terms of certain risk factors of uh, cardiovascular risk and, uh, and issues with uh, substance abuse and smoking and alcohol, we begin to, to see some potential signals. What about obesity? Uh, we talked a little bit about orexin and feeding and sleepiness and feeding. Uh, all of those are potential factors that are, are present. And of course, if you're sleepy, maybe you don't move as much. Maybe it affects your basal metabolic rate. Um, and so there is some evidence in the deficient mice, for example, that resulted in hypoactivity and theoretically sleepiness could all contribute to this weight gain. So now we have sleepiness, disruption of sleep-wake processes, excessive sleepiness. Now we have obesity as a factor. We clearly know that hypertension is a factor in cardiovascular disease. It's a huge factor. Um, and it certainly is affected by weight and our diet. Um, in fact, NIH just had a consensus conference. I mentioned this before, uh, not a consensus conference, but um, a study where they took the macro elements of, of food and let individuals eat ad lib and the processed foods the, the, the group over two weeks consumed 300 calories a day extra, eating processed foods alone, as opposed to fresh food. So, so how we eat and what we eat is, uh, is really an important uh, factor in terms of maintaining our health. The sodium obviously has a significant influence on hypertension. There's always this debate about what is the right amount of sodium that we should take, and, and I'm I'm welcome to be part of that debate because I don't know exactly, but we do have recommendations. And I heard today that the World Health Organization wants us to consume 30% less sodium at some point in the future. I can't remember what the target year is, but if our average consumption is around 3,400 milligrams, if you do the math, 30% of that is right around 1,000 milligrams of sodium. And when you look at this study, which looked at urine um, collection, and what it says is effectively, if we change our sodium intake by 1,000 milligrams, we have a significant reduction in cardiovascular risk. So, um, 
no matter what your sodium intake is, if you reduce it, we'll see a signal. Now, this is a meta-analysis. I won't spend much time on this, but it says if you have a 100 millimole reduction, I think um, 50 millimoles of sodium is about 1,100 milligrams. But the point is, if you, um, if you modify... Um, if you modify your sodium intake, you, we, it will have an effect on blood pressure. And remember, a few millimeters of change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure affects cardiovascular health. And when we think about the impact and the odds ratio of uh, what impacts our cardiovascular health, you see that uh, hypertension adjusted is a huge factor. I mean, it's, it's the main factor in terms of this cardiovascular risk. So how much sodium do we take? And um, we know that oxabate is a molecule that is really a standard of care. Um, our society has said oxabate is a standard of care in the care of the, our patients with narcolepsy, both for excessive sleepiness as well as cataplexy. Um, all of my patients with narcolepsy know about oxabate. And when you look at sodium oxabate and the potential sodium intake, it's about 1,640 milligrams at 9 grams. And at entry level of 6 grams, it's 1,100 milligrams. So, that's, um, so I talk to my patients about the, how much sodium they're taking. The other is that we use medicines. And these are some of the medicines we know. You you're all are familiar with them. But modafinil, armodafinil, dopamine reuptake inhibitors, they can have an effect on heart rate and blood pressure. And in fact, it's relatively contraindicated in a patient who has unstable cardiac status. Uh, clearly, the Schedule II drugs have a huge effect and an increase in sympathetic tone. Oxabate itself, the main thing is the sodium load there. Uh, of course, they take this at night. Patolosant prolongs QT interval, can. Uh, and so Reamphetol, which is a dual dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, could certainly have an effect on sympathetic tone. Um, th this was actually Kushida's article, Abadan, where they actually tried to look at some of the sodium oxabate data, and in all fairness, when they sort of looked at uh, this, and you have to remember, this is real world, patients are on antihypertensives, we don't know exactly the dose and the duration, but it is a lot of patients, and you, there is a signal, you could say the signal is not a gigantic signal, but again, these patients are being treated, followed, and modified in terms of their, of their therapy. But we do have, obviously, the REMS program. We have information on these individuals. And um, when you see that uh, the, uh, the data that we can get from this will help guide us in terms of um, how to evaluate and treat these patients. So uh, thank you for attention. I, I want to really emphasize about this state stability and how our cells are processing what they need to do in order to keep us alive. And certainly this molecule orexin is a, is a big factor. Thank you. Good, thank you, Richard. Uh, okay, so you, you've heard a lot about the uh, fact that there is increased uh, risk of cardiovascular disorders in patients with narcolepsy. And you've heard from uh, Richard about a lot of the things that uh, uh, can contribute to that that are potentially modifiable. So let's talk now a little bit more from a practical sense. But first of all, we've got some more ARS questions here. So um, how would you characterize, this is a question you had before, what would you think now? How would you characterize cardiovascular risk related to narcolepsy? 
Okay, so we're, we're the no sure, not sure people have gone now, so uh, I guess uh, you've gone more into the severe and, and moderately severe category. So I think everybody uh, does think that cardiovascular risk is important in narcolepsy. Okay, next slide. Uh, which of the following factors most likely explains it? Okay, so I think that's a higher number with regards to combination of pathophysiological factors plus uh, lifestyle changes. Okay, so now we're going to discuss uh, in more detail these uh, risk factors and how to reduce them. Which of the following cardiovascular factors are modifiable in, uh, the, in patients with narcolepsy? Okay, all of the above. Yeah, they, they can all be modified to some extent, so you can make a difference in your patients with narcolepsy. When talking to your patients with narcolepsy about the quality of their sleep, what are you most likely to ask about? I, I think for good sleep habits, it's important to ask about those, and uh, it's not just the quality of sleep. You really have to know about the timing of sleep in the 24-hour day is uh, most important for these patients. Maintaining a regular sleep-wake pattern is really important, and making sure that they have an adequate amount of sleep at night is important. So it's really all of these things. And about naps, because if they take too long naps during the daytime, that may take away from their nighttime sleep and add to uh, sleep-wake uh, disturbances. So it's important to ask about all these factors and when you're assessing your narcolepsy patients. Okay, which of the following behavioural treatments do you consider most important for managing cardiovascular risk in your patients? So, think about your patients with narcolepsy, and which of these would you consider to be the most important one to advise your patient about? In the patient population, your particular patient population. Okay, sleep. Okay, so you feel that's the most important thing about the stable sleep-wake pattern. Uh, and then next would be uh, reducing sodium. Okay, so uh, uh, Richard, I think you made a point there about sodium. So that's very good. And weight reduction. And uh, avoidance of cigarette use, number there. Um, do you have many narcolepsy patients that smoke? What do you think, Richard? Do you think many nar narcolepsy patients smoke? Not very many. I, I would probably, <laughs> gosh, less than 10%. Well, you, you know, I'm impressed, though. The best thing for sleepiness is sleep. So, you know, that's, I can yep. see why we chose sleep as, as a big one as well as the sodium. I think those are good, good yeah, points. Yeah, but if their sleep right. quality is not good that's because true. of their yeah. condition, that may mm. not... Work. So it may not be the best thing, I still think. <laughs> well, no, it is the best thing, but it's, you know, you should get adequate amount yeah. of sleep, yeah. But the fact that an, uh, a disturbed sleep pattern just by itself can contribute to cardiovascular risk, I think is a very mm -hmm. important that, issue yeah. and that people are obviously coming to recognize now. Okay, so um, these are behavioral recommendations, things that you, you can modify and... Uh, uh, why don't we go through them? I mean, uh, promote a healthy lifestyle throughout life. What would you, uh, Phyllis, if I can ask you, what would you tell a patient about this? Uh, how would you uh, have a patient uh, uh, deal with that? Uh, 
What sort of things would you tell a patient to do in their lifestyle that are going to be important for them? Yeah, well, I think that depends on the individual patient. I mean, some of our, my narcolepsy patients do not need to lose weight. I mean, they look, you know, they're... So it really does depend on the individual. But I, I do uh, routinely, you know, we get the diary clearly, so we want to promote regularity of sleep, so making sure that they have a regular sleep and wake schedule and that don't deviate too much from weekdays and weekends. I also have a food diary that I usually give to my patients so that I can look at the timing of food. I can look at the macronutrients, maybe the sodium, you know, those types of things, just looking for ways that I can actually change some of those approaches. Always exercise, uh, or I would just say maintaining some physical activity uh, as well. And I also tell them to get some light during the day because mm -hmm. that can be helpful for their sleep um, as well. So there are some of the things I look at and uh, for a healthy lifestyle in okay. general. Good. Incorporate a team-based care approach. So, uh, clinicians should evaluate social determinants of health. Uh, what do you think about that, Richard? I mean, what... Uh, sort of team-based care approach you think is important for these patients? Yeah, I think before I answer that, I want to, I'm going to add to what Phyllis said because it should be proud of me because I really talk about circadian rhythm mm -hmm. with my patients. I mean, we actually walk through sleep-wake processes, how the brain does that in, in patient terms. And we talk about orexin and then mm -hmm. downstream, you know, right. monoaminergic amines and how the brain stabilizes wake, mm -hmm. wakefulness and talk about homeostatic drive and Mm -hmm. All of those things so that I can helpfully entrain the patient because, again, the best thing for, my, best thing for sleepiness is good sleep. And, um, and then the t even the timing of the medications. Um, so with that encouragement, that then translates into, okay, how are you doing? What are, what's happening with your medicines? We talk about the calories. But then when they do have problems, that's when we get into the issue of I need help. I need... Um, someone who really knows nutrition that can uh, help them with nutritional mm -hmm. status and um, obviously examine them for comorbidities, watch their blood pressure, get the help of a cardiologist when I have problems mm -hmm. with hypertension and um, do we need beta blockers or what's the best in this person mm -hmm. and particularly when I'm using drugs that are you know turning up the autonomic tone. So, mm. so I mean uh, obviously uh, a healthy lifestyle involves uh, dietary factors and weight and exercise and uh, uh, consuming a, a good diet. Do you think we should be um, uh, utilizing the services of nutritionists more often? Do you think we, most physicians do or, or do not use a new, involve a nutritionist with their narcolepsy patients? What, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, I, I think they don't as much as they should, and myself included. Um, because, I mean, they really are very good at sort of analyzing, mm -hmm. okay, this is what you're doing now, and this is kind of the low-hanging fruit in terms of what I might be able to do in terms of helping people. I mean, they, right. they can target it very well. I, I think we underutilize them. Okay, so going through this uh, exercise, uh, again, I mean, uh, I don't know, do physicians very often recommend uh, exercise uh, strategies to patients? Uh, what do you think, Phyllis? I do. Do, it? I, do. I actually do. I think it's important. I also, just because they may not have access to a dietitian or so forth, I just have them do a modified DASH diet. 
it's printed, it's there, and NIH proposes it. It's a low-sodium diet, relatively speaking. It's got, you know, so it's, it's a simple one for them to try. And then, yes, exercise. I, I, I don't tell them to go do vigorous exercise and go to the gym and right. sign up for all that mm -hmm. stuff. It's really just, I think, uh, moderate levels of exercise, walking, and right. doing that more regularly. And if they, you know, want to go to the gym, that's fine too. But I do right. get, in, it's more like increasing physical activity. Yeah, I mean, the exercise certainly helps to uh, improve alertness and uh, can help with maintaining that sleep-wake schedule as mm -hmm. well. So, I mean, exercise really has more than one, one role, not only in terms of uh, right. maintaining weight, but, uh, and also just general physical health, but uh, yeah. uh, can also be important in terms of a sleep-wake cycle. Right, and sometimes they can't, like, w exercise for, like, an hour and go to the gym. And I think you, if you can have a cumulative amount of like 45 minutes to an hour of moderate levels of physical activity, that may, you know, that follows almost the American mm -hmm. Heart Association's okay. recommendations. Yeah, I do the same thing. It was the 200 calories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try to burn 200 calories today and, and then also don't eat that bag of crackers. So, you know, and I mean, that's a mile and a half. It, it's, you don't have to break a land speed record. Yeah. I mean, it depends on weight, obviously, yeah. but, but a, you know, a mile and a half of walking. And that, mm. that's the other thing I tell them is you don't have to be at max VO2 consumption mm. to get a significant cardiovascular effect. You can get 90% of what you need just walking aggressively. If you want to get that extra 10%, you got to push it to the limit, cross anaerobic threshold or close to it. But but you can get a lot just, as you say, just right. good, good old walking. Right. Mm. And then the last one here, of course, if you do have a patient that's smoking, you're going to advise that patient to, to quit. Okay, another question for you. Which of the following are you, are you most likely to prescribe to manage cardiovascular risk in your patients with narcolepsy? Which one, if you're going to prescribe any of these, which are you most likely to do? So many of you prescribe antihypertensives. Uh, equal number say that you, you're really not going to do any of this and I assume you will refer them to their primary care physician or, or a specialist to uh, carry out the therapy. But occasional patients will do this. Weight reduction medication, that's interesting and particularly in light of uh, new developments in uh, weight reduction medication. So um, primary prevention of cardiovascular disease uh, statin therapy is, is regarded as the first-line treatment for the pre, uh, prevention of uh, elevated uh, uh, hyperlipids in patients and those with diabetes 40 to 75 years of age. And um, in terms of medications for blood pressure, uh, the recommendation is targeting a blood pressure of less than 130 over or 80, although that number seems to be sort of shifting all the time a little bit, but at the moment it's 130 over 80 is the recommendation. So in checking your narcolepsy patients, if you find that they are above that, then you have to uh, consider that they should be on uh, some pharmacological therapy. Okay, another question. Which of the following comorbidities is most important to you to assess for cardiovascular risk in your patients. So which of these things in your patient population with narcolepsy do you consider to be the most important thing to address? Okay, so uh, hypertension. So it, uh, 
I'm assuming from this that the uh, majority of you are seeing significant hypertension in your patients with narcolepsy. So uh, it's good that you're recognizing that and that there is hypertension and that needs to be treated. And also recognizing the fact that there are comorbidities such as obstructive sleep apnea syndrome that occur in patients uh, with uh, narcolepsy. Uh, in terms of um, things like cardiac arrhythmias, uh, heart failure, uh, diabetes, are you seeing much of that, uh, Richard, in your population at all, of narcoleptics? Um, no, I mean, I think in, uh, in the narcolepsy population, I mean, I, clearly we see cardiovascular events, but, um, but hypertension uh, is the big one. It's yeah. a big one. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. You agree? If, uh, yeah, no, yeah, not much heart failure. You know, probably AFib. You know, we see that. I see yeah. patients with AFib mm -hmm. a good deal. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, so, um, so these are all the comorbidities that you, you do need to consider. I mean, it's more than just the cardiovascular ones, but as Richard mentioned, uh, medications are, are important in these patients, not only the stimulant medications with regard to cardiovascular risk, but also sedatives are very important in these uh, patients to be considering because that's going to affect sleep-wake issues. Uh, alcohol, uh, hepatic disease, fortunately we don't see a lot of that, but many patients are on oral contraceptives, but if they do have hepatic disease, of course, that's important consideration for the treatment that you're going to give patients. Uh, anxiety disorder, uh, potential for arrhythmias, uh, renal failure, sleep apnea, uh, depressive disorder, psychotic disorder. Psychotic disorder, of course, is mm -hmm. not uncommon and uh, it's not rare in narcolepsy patients. I think I, I could go back to Phyllis's comment earlier. I mean, substance abuse is fairly low in, yeah. our, in our population. Yeah. It really is. And they, they protect their sleep-wake processes so much. I mean, they're, they're like, there's no way I'm going to get let my medicines or, or consume something that interferes with my sleep-wake processes. As a rule, I mean, they, these are, are remarkable people. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, but I think depression is something that needs to be definitely depression. asked. I mean, I, I screen for them. I didn't used to, but I do think it's really important because that's probably where, you, if they are going to do something weird with their drugs, it's yeah. because of a mood disorder. Yeah, and the other, uh, you know, is uh, anxiety, and that really can interfere with some of the drugs yeah. that we're on yeah. and, and may yeah, precipitate uh, elevated blood pressure in some of these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Which of the following strategies do you most often consider in the management of cardiovascular risk in your patients with nar narcolepsy? Oh, avoid sodium if hypertensive uh, is the big one. Um, uh, I, I would think uh, an important one is number two, avoiding alerting medications, uh, particularly uh, if there's some cardiac disease, and you need to be careful because so many patients with narcolepsy have been treated with amphetamines, methylphenidate, etc. So, so uh, I think in some ways I probably see that uh, a little bit more than I actually see uh, uh, sodium uh, concerns in patients with narcolepsy. What's your feeling, Richard, or, or Phyllis? What do you feel? I, I chose uh, avoid the stimulants. That was my choice. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, if they're on it, you, you, you can, you know, stop yeah. some of those. Because I think they do contribute more directly uh, to their 
blood pressure or cardiovascular disease. Right. But also I think the age of the patient. If they're older, I probably would do that first as well. Yep. Yeah. How about you, Richard? Do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, the medicines are so important to the patients for some quality of life. So, I mean, we work around and try to, you know, consult a cardiologist, maybe even do some monitoring, um, whatever, but they need their medicines. So, I'm, I, so the avoiding of, avoidance of medicines, I mean, sometimes we do it, but, but um, we don't avoid the medicines that much. You'd be surprised. Huh? And um, so... Clearly, diet and exercise um, are, the, are the, the things that we focus on in those individuals most initially. Yeah, I have to tell you that my, my, the, my patients, internists, and they're always very concerned. Their blood pressure is poorly controlled. They're harping on me about their, even their modafinil. They, they're really concerned about that. They don't want them on these stimulant medications, mm -hmm. so that's... Yeah, yeah, I, I tend to try to avoid, particularly the traditional stimulants, certainly yeah. as much as right. possible right. if I can. Okay, um, so comorbidities to consider when prescribing medications are, are listed here, and uh, I'm not going to read through the whole list, but uh, you can see what things to, uh, that you might cause you to avoid using sodium oxabate, which things would cause you to avoid Modafinil, armodafinil, and patolicent. Of course, the big one there is oral contraceptives, uh, but for the reason that it's going to reduce the efficacy of those. And then uh, high cardiovascular risk, avoiding methylphenidate and amphetamines. Uh, if there are arrhythmias in the patient, you want to be cautious about patolicent because it affects the QTC interval. Uh, renal failure, those drugs that... Uh, uh, may be excreted renally, uh, such as uh, particularly solreamphetol, which is renally excreted rather than hepatically metabolized. Uh, and sleep apnea, of course, you've got to be careful with the oxabates because uh, you could worsen that. And um, uh, careful with oxabates also if patients are depressed, if there's significant depression, particularly suicidal ideation. And again, if somebody shows evidence of psychotic disorder, then avoiding those traditional stimulants makes a lot of sense. Okay, another question. How concerned are you about the sodium content and sodium oxabate? Okay, so a majority would be concerned or, or very concerned about it. Okay. What's that? Uh, some of you, though, not, not very concerned at all. Um, and it'd be interesting to know why you feel that you're not concerned. Do you feel that there's uh, uh, not much of a risk, or you feel that in your particular patient population that uh, they, those particular patients are not at much risk? Well, it'd be interesting to know the answer to that. Okay. So, uh, you know, as uh, Richard has told us, uh, nine grams of uh, sodium oxabate has uh, uh, 1,640 milligrams of uh, salt, and uh, the usual dietary intake is 3,400 milligrams. So you're looking at over five grams of salt intake at the highest dose of uh, sodium oxabate. So you have to consider that. Uh, you may not choose to, to alter the medication in your patients uh, that are on sodium oxabate, but, but at least you need to be aware that there is a significant sodium load there. And, uh, you know, the alternative, of course, is a lower sodium oxabate uh, 
formulation. And uh, so that could contribute to lowering the risk with uh, cardiovascular disorders. Okay, so practice uh, points to consider. Um, how important is it, Richard, to uh, assess cardiovascular risk in NT2? We, we talked about some of the pathophysiology with the Rexin loss maybe contributing to cardiovascular risk. What about the NT2 patients? Do you think they're at the same degree of risk as NT1, or is there a differential? Yeah, I don't really know. I suspect that uh, maybe... You know, maybe there might be less, but that would be a guess. I think the bond right. data looked at both, didn't it? Yeah, they yeah. looked at both. So I think it's, um, so I think there's still risk there. We just, we, there's, we just don't know. I mean, of course, some of the N, N2 are really uh, type 1. I mean, they, they just hadn't had a lumbar puncture to figure it out. And then the cataplex is not apparent. So, mm. um, so I, I, from a cardiovascular risk perspective, I sort of, equally uh, consider yeah. some risk. Yeah. And then older patients, obviously we need to be concerned as our patients get older and they develop comorbidities, cardiovascular comorbidities, we may need to change their medication uh, strategy. So we, it's a reason to follow our patients closely and assess what's happening over time in these particular patients. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, again, if they're on stimulant medications, we have to be concerned about those uh, uh, cardiovascular risks and uh, make adjustments as necessary. I see, just mentioned drug holidays there. You know, we used to talk a lot about drug holidays in patients years ago. I'm not sure it's a good strategy, though, if you've got a potential for cardiovascular disease. I mean, it used to be carried out a lot because the feeling was that patients would... Uh, uh, be more sensitive to the medications after a drug holiday of a few days being off the medication. But it's not done so much these days. I think with the newer medications, there's less evidence that that's really going to make a difference to it. Perhaps it was a little bit more important than when the primary uh, medications were amphetamines, for example. Yeah. Drug holidays were probably a good idea, partly also because you didn't want patients to you know, escalate dose over time, and there was a feeling that a drug holiday would uh, reduce the amount of uh, amphetamine that a patient may take. But these days, I don't know, what, what's your feeling? Uh, do you use drug holidays very often? No, I agree with you. I used to. I used to, mm. especially for the amphetamines and amphetamine-like uh, derivatives, but I have not recently. No, you can just change it to a different medication uh, as you either taper or stop the other one. And the important practice point here is that behavior modification certainly can help to reduce cardiovascular risk, uh, dealing with the things that we've uh, been talking about. Okay, so um, in uh, sort of summary, I mean, uh, sort of summarize a little bit. So. Uh, Maybe Phyllis or, or Richard, do you want to just talk? I mean, as a bottom line, what do we know about cardiovascular risk in, in narcolepsy? How would you mm -hmm. say it succinctly? What's our current feeling about yeah, what I mean, uh, cardiovascular I think the data is pretty clear. I mean, it's obviously observational data, not right. cause and effect, but we yeah. do have some cause and effect information about mm -hmm. this neuropeptide orexin and what it does. And so, the, I mean, we have to have eyes wide open and watch the science evolve. I mean, we're learning so much about what this neuropeptide does. But, right. um, 
but I think there clearly appears to be, I think Ohian's work that he's done from an epidemiologic right. perspective is really, is pretty fascinating. Again, this is observational, but it catches our attention. And oh, by the way, um, we have the patients in front of us, we have modifiable risk factors that we can easily address. And so I think it's, it's very important. I think it's very real. Mm. Yeah. So talking about those cardiovascular uh, risk factors that we can manage, uh, Phyllis, I mean, what would you say are some of the most important ones that we really need to consider in every patient with narcolepsy? What modification? Before I answer that, I wanted to point yep. out that children, that these CV, these cardiovascular metabolic disease factors come earlier, perhaps, in patients with narcolepsy, like in teenage years and so forth. So it's not that uncommon to have hypertension. In, mm -hmm. in, in a teenager with right. narcolepsy, yeah, whereas you probably wouldn't see that. So I do think it's really important that we consider that early because it's a lifelong condition or disease. Yeah. And uh, you're really, I, I think, managing the behaviorally or otherwise a cardiovascular disease risk is really important as early as possible. I think Good that's point. really where I, I would mm -hmm. go. Yeah, I, I think behavior modification, behaviors, lifestyle is probably what you would go with first. Take a look at the medications that they're taking. Maybe you could change their medication if it's something that is a presser, something that is a stimulant that you know is gonna increase either blood pressure and or the risk for heart disease. So those are things I would be looking at. Weight management, uh, even if your patient does not have is obese and or much, you know, overweight, I still, I still regulate their diet and try to make sure yeah. that they're using a healthy diet. Yeah, I, I would add one thing too, that if I can, if I can go to the same active moiety, that's right. the gram for gram, and I can lower the sodium load, then, then I will do right. that. But you got to talk taste, to them a lot about a the sodium. issue, <laughs> right. Right. So what, what, what more, of, what information do we need, do you think, going forward to really understand this more and, and really know uh, what the risk is and what we should be doing to modify that risk in patients? Uh, what research do you think we need uh, in this area? Yeah, I, I think we need prospective uh, trials, kind of, I, I wouldn't call it definitely not randomized clinical trials, but kind of adaptive and or just practical trials where if you do lower the salt content, if you modify these risks, mm -hmm. are you really, can you yeah. modify that risk? And you want to start this as early as possible. Right. I think that would, be, that would be important. And then some more basic uh, studies where you really look more carefully at the physiology very few studies have actually been done bringing patients with narcolepsy into the laboratory and or in real life looking like you can do now continuous glucose monitoring. Why not do that? You know, in these patients can look across the entire 24 hours for a week or so mm -hmm. uh, and, and really look at what those risks are. And in fact, if they change those behaviors, does that modify these, the physiology? I think that would be very much more convincing to our uh, internists and our colleagues who are really taking, our cardiologists, sure. for example. Very good. Well, I think we have, and we have new drugs evolving too. Yeah. So we need to understand the uh, mechanism of action and safety of these new drugs. And I've been, mm -hmm. I'm really excited. Well, look, uh, thank you all for doing that. That's, uh, that was fun. That's clever. Okay, so uh, 
We must finish up, but any last uh, sort of uh, comments that you'd like to make, uh, Richard or Phyllis? Yeah, I think over the last couple of years, I really have become to recognize about the cardiovascular metabolic disease risk factors for patients with narcolepsy. And for that matter, you know, it's just patients who are excessively sleepy, mm. who um, maybe even people who have IH, although, you know, the data is not as clear there, which uh, I have to confess that I wasn't so careful about uh, even five years ago. So I do think that's really important to ask. Uh, I, I had a patient who just was had been complaining about swelling in her mm -hmm. legs, you know, in her mm -hmm. ankle. Never thought about this. And, you know, I thought it was something else. And I said, go to your internet and see what's going on. But now I'm thinking, oh, it could be. Yeah. Ask her about her sodium content in, in her diet. So, yeah. Richard, any comments? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with the, the data that says if I change sodium intake by a thousand milligrams, I get a signal. Mm. And it's, I think that's pretty well established. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of debate about how much sodium should we have, but that catches my attention. If I can just reduce by a thousand milligrams, there's, there's a mm. signal there that's yeah. relevant. And um, so I think we translate that into it. And I'm a, but then uh, secondarily, I'm a big proponent of my patients understanding what I know of that I can translate to them in terms of pathophysiology, the, you know, mm -hmm. this molecule orexin and all these important things that might explain some of their symptoms, might explain their headaches, mm -hmm. might explain some of their um, uh, other ailments that they complain of. And right. um, I don't always know, but, but I think it's important for them to know that and then how that is modifiable. Um, right. So mm -hmm. I think that's important. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in the past we've been so caught up with dealing with the excessive daytime sleepiness and the cataplexy, and we've really just focused on that. I, I think we're sort of moving away from that now. I mean, we have to obviously treat those things, and we have new medications to be able to treat it. But we've got to think more globally in our patients and think more about their general health going forward, not just dealing with those day-to-day -day symptoms, but look for the, uh, the future and what the potential risk is. So looking at comorbidities, looking at modifiable factors that can affect cardiovascular disease. So I think we need to take a more holistic view of our patients than we have in the past and, and not keep it just at a, uh, a basic level of dealing with the sleepiness and cataplexy. Well, uh, thank you all very much. I greatly appreciate your uh, attending the program. And our uh, uh, time has come to a close. But if you do have any questions that you'd like to ask any of the faculty, please uh, come on up afterwards, and I'm sure they'll be happy to answer them. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.